Welcome to uh, episode 40 of our uh, podcast, the Lebanese Physician Podcast, which will be co-hosted by Dr. Muhammad Ali Jardali today. And our guest today is Dr. Uh, Anwar uh, Shaya, who's an oncologist in Lebanon. Uh, we will be talking about the current state of oncology in Lebanon. Uh, Dr. Shaya, actually, we all know him very well. Uh, I know him very well, at least. Uh, he did his medical school at the Lebanese American University and subsequently did his res- residency uh, in internal medicine and fellowship in Hematology and Oncology at uh, LAUMC Hospital and currently is practicing at uh, RISA at uh, St. John's, which is the hospital in Junior affiliated with uh, LAU uh, and also has a private clinic in Sofor and uh, does some uh, work helping uh, helping others in a primary care clinic uh, in uh, Bush Hamoud. And of course, Dr. Hamad Al-Jadari, we don't need to introduce him. Uh, everybody knows him uh, by now. Uh, so welcome, uh, welcome Anwar to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. So uh, Anwar, we were going to discuss the current state. You, you are a new practicing uh, hematologist and oncologist uh, in Lebanon. I think you just started practicing uh, beginning of this year, right during the summertime. And uh, so what's the current state? I mean, you probably have a lot of input into the current state of uh, oncology in Lebanon and how things are going in terms of cancer treatments. Um, so um, as, as with everything in Lebanon at the moment, it's not our best times, as, as we all know. And cancer patients are particularly facing a very difficult time due to their either the lack of medications, their inability to get the medications. I think we're going to go through them, but not, not the easiest times if we want to put it in a nutshell. So uh, I'm really glad that we have you with us today. Uh, I think you have a unique insight uh, because you practice in a tertiary care center in a private and academic setting, but also in uh, a primary healthcare setting and uh, in rural areas. So uh, what's going on? Let's start, if you want, with uh, screening cancers, and then we can talk about testing treatment uh, and so forth. So unfortunately, and not to to make things sound dramatic, but more realistic when when it comes particularly to tertiary care centers or to to tertiary areas, screening has literally become a luxury. Um, For example, there are a lot of um, third party payers that would help a lot of patients, let's say with mammograms. But um, of course, we shouldn't forget that screening doesn't just Um, fall onto breast cancer. We still have uh, screening for colon cancer, screening for lung cancer. And those are unfortunately becoming uh, a luxury to a lot of patients who can afford it because uh, third party payers are either not covering it. And I don't know if you want me to, to, to mention this now, but at some point there were a lot of things that were done by the Ministry of Public Health. And now a lot, we find a lot of hospitals not covering any of those. So screening is, is falling behind, especially for those that, um, that can't afford it. I, I can attest to that. My mom had her pap smear uh, last week and it cost 150000 And it used to cost 20000 So just to put things in perspective, the minimum wage in Lebanon is still 600000 So literally one-fourth of the minimum wage just to get a pap smear done. Uh, it's uh, so, completely out of reach for the vast majority of people who are unemployed and have zero income. So imagine the colonoscopy. 
as you're saying, just a simple pap costs that much now. So a colonoscopy or, God forbid, a CT scan of the lungs, is um, they're, they're becoming out of way, out of reach. So basically what you guys are saying is that preventative services at this point are not uh, fully covered by third-party payers uh, for patients. Exactly. At some point back in the days, they were, as uh, Hamad was saying, um, more affordable or more uh, people could actually do them. But now we find a lot of people, especially after the COVID times, because, you know, COVID uh, was a difficult year for everyone. And then the, um, the hyperinflation happened in Lebanon and it just got things worse and worse. And we can see it with patients coming in with advanced malignancies. Yeah. We're seeing that big of a number. So I just started out. I'm, I'm not supposed to see that many of patients that have this much of advanced disease. And, and I'm seeing a lot. So this tells you something. So do you, think, do you think that number of advanced disease patients is partially related to the fact that people for the past two years have not been screening adequately for their cancers? or could be unfortunately, unfortunately, this has a big part to do with it because I, I actually saw three patients uh, this week that told me that they, are not, they were not able to afford their mammograms even by the time that um, the... Uh, uh, the uh, Ministry of Health does the uh, discounts on the screening images or does even some of them for free at certain areas. Even during these months, so they pay about like, let's say um, 80,000 Lebanese liras or um, sometimes reaching up to 100,000. They found that they should spend it on something else because that's how much they did not have money. The, the cost is very prohibitive. I mean, what Anwar is talking about is the subsidized mammography for 100,000. But in True. some centers who are not subsidized, it can reach up to 2 million lira. And yes. this week, up to 3 million lira for just a mammography. Ridiculous. The cost is very prohibitive. Like, I cannot it's, stress that enough. Uh, I mean, you can, you can literally check out two centers in the same area and you will not find the same price. And you'll find a massive difference in the same area. Like, in, uh, right next to my like, 15-minute drive from my house, you will find different centers one that is readily affordable for the middle class and the other one, like not even. So I don't know um, how this happens. There's no limits. Sorry, the government doesn't monitor the pricing of screening tests for hospitals. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And then with the removal of the subsidies the past few months and now with the hyperinflation, I mean, just the past 24 hours, the, the lira dropped by like another two or three thousand, like, and then the labs will adjust the rate that very same day. I had a patient who ordered the imaging on the eighth floor, and by the time she went down in the elevator to go to the cashier to pay, the price had already increased, like, within, just, like, in the elevator yeah. ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remind me, guys, what's the minimum wage right now? It's 680,000, right? Viras? I think it's 600,000. Uh, I believe... I believe it's 600 thou as well. Okay. Yes, how can people afford this? I guess they just get money from the relatives outside the country to be able to afford any of this care, right? If they can. Even transportation, Khalil, to the hospital to get tested. I mean, like, service is like between 50 thou to 80 thou, sometimes 100 thou, service. So that's just one way. So you need like 200 thou for two-way service. 
Right. Yes, yes, it's it's getting ridiculous. The the numbers that we're seeing every day they're really getting ridiculous because and at at some point you find that you have a big number of people that can handle this and they either got get help from someone from the inside, they get help from someone from the outside, but then you see this percentage of people that can't even afford this. And as I saw today in Muhammad's tweet talking about this because they they he, he saw a patient that um, wanted 10,000 to buy uh, bread. We're seeing a lot of those and they don't have anyone to help them and it's catastrophic. And so, so, so uh, Anwar, you, you, you talked about screening and, and people presenting with advanced cancer afterwards. So I guess when you see somebody with advanced cancer, you need to treat them with, depending on what type of cancer it is, right? with chemotherapy, with radiation therapy, and sometimes with targeted treatments or immunotherapies. So are you able to still provide the adequate treatment for these patients? Uh, number one, can they, can they pay for them? Number two, if they can pay for them, are these treatments available for the patients? So um, fortunately, um, this couple, the last couple of weeks, the medications that were completely out of sight started reappearing again. Um, most of them are still subsidized, however, being, uh, if you would talk to an oncologist that is practicing in a university setting, they would tell you, yes, sure, we can still get them. But uh, when you start looking at the centers or at the hospitals that uh, can't, uh, don't have a backup for them, um, this is becoming problematic. Um, for, for example, uh, particularly when it comes to um, um, targeted targeted therapy, targeted therapy is 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 way out of sight. So for for uh, simple breast malign not simple, but you know what I mean for for those malignancies that we used to say they're easily to treat, they're easy to treat, and we have the medications for them. I I literally had to look through five or six hospitals to be able to transfer a patient that doesn't have a third party payment um, background. Six, uh, five or six hospitals. And then I ended up telling her that I can't find you a place where you can take your medications other than you having to pay for it. And the problem is, as you know, is not only with the medication, but with the medications, the pre-medications that come with the medications, the hospital admission, the uh, fees that come just uh, for the sake of getting admitted to a certain hospital, you'll find it as... Um, um, uh, worth of millions of Lebanese liras, which is uh, something that people can't afford. So out of, out of each 10 patients, you see how many patients you think can afford their treatment and how many patients cannot afford their treatment? So now the, uh, the country is getting divided. The middle class is almost disappearing. You have the upper uh, middle class and the higher class versus the lower class. So if I see in an average setting out of 10 patients now, because, and, and to be fair, I'm not seeing all of them in, in, um, in the university setting, but out of the 10, almost six or seven can't afford their treatment. And the remaining three need some kind of help. So it's not like the, the remaining three are, are at ease because even, um, treatments that we use with uh, our oncology treatments like antibiotics and uh, antacids or uh, proton pump inhibitors are becoming way out of control. 
And I think this uh, echoes what's happening in the country where 70% of the population is plunged into poverty and 23% of the population is plunged into extreme poverty. And we talk about extreme poverty, we're talking about people who live on less than a dollar a day. That's 23% of the population are living on less than a dollar a day. 23%, so that's one out of four. So, and then 70% are in uh, poverty. So I, I think what Anwar is talking about, the, the big divide in, in Lebanon, and he, he also tweeted about it the other day, where for some people you do a workup for 10 million lira, like it's nothing. And then yeah. for the next patient, even 40 thou is uh, a deal breaker for them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then this ties in with like the three A's of public health in terms of availability, accessibility, and affordability. So affordability is such a big uh, determinant, but then when we get to accessibility and then to availability, even if you have fresh dollars, the medication isn't available in Lebanon. You have to uh, get it from Turkey or uh, Syria or Egypt. Uh, so I, I don't know what, what your experience with that is, Anwar, even with patients who have dollars, right? They have to import the medication. Absolutely. So I just had a patient a couple of uh, days ago as well, or last week, where, where the patient was, fortunately for her, she, has a, she was able to afford, uh, afford her treatment. However, the medication was not available. Um, and the only way we could get it, because it was extremely difficult for her to even buy it from outside, because we're talking about thousands of dollars per per 28-day uh, dosing, because as you know, oncology treatments are, are, not, are not the most affordable types of treatments. And the box would cost her about $3,500 to $4,000, and it would last about one month. So it's a big amount of money to pay. Even when she was willing to, to do so, it was difficult for us to get it from outside. So we got stuck with both sides. And the way that we resorted to things is that we started getting these medications from oncologists that have it as samples. And even though some of them were expired from like two or three weeks, but she had an acute leukemia and we had nothing better to do. So imagine in 2021, where we think that the best optimal treatment is to give our patient an expired medication. We, I mean, medically, we know that it can last for four to six months after the medication actually expires. But when this is the only thing that you can do, I mean, it doesn't point out to great things. And I guess for like some treatments, Anwar, a delay by a few weeks isn't a big deal. But in other treatments, a difference of even a day is, uh, is a huge deal. Exactly, especially when, you're, when you, you're talking about leukemias. And that's why we got stuck with this patient. We can't delay treatment. Even, if, even 24 hours can, can affect mortality horribly. But other times we can wait. Of course, uh, it's always better not to, but um, when you have nothing else to do, some types of tumors can wait because of their slow progression. But others are, are in no way or in any shape uh, are we capable of doing that. And you mentioned something briefly, but I think we should address it more into details. Uh, you were talking about the other stuff. It's not just the chemo that's not available. It's uh, stuff uh, like anti-emetics, like uh, Nozetron, for example, or Zofron. 
uh, even simple antibiotics were not available. I know patients who had to delay their surgeries until they were able to find antibiotics. Is that your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you get used to a certain standard with, uh, with medication availability. And we had, I think in the region, we had one of the best experiences with, with medications and we had up-to-date treatments and we had everything that we could possibly wish for. And then all of a sudden you have nothing. And um, I'm not trying to make things dramatic, but I found it very hard for a patient to find a simple anti-emetic and I didn't just use one or two or three, up to four or five types and I couldn't find any of them. This was uh, almost two weeks ago. Now, now it's, it's better. But to tell you that, as you were saying about the three A's, most of them were not accessible. Some, most of them are becoming unaffordable. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are unavailable. So this is exactly my experience, as you were saying. Can you, can you give us some examples of, a couple of examples, I guess, patients who tried to start on treatment but could not start treatment at all? Yes. And then, or patients who were on treatment and had to potentially stop it in the middle because of the crisis. Yes. So um, we had a patient that had um, HER2 positive breast cancer, and she had to take um, what is uh, known as Bergetta or Pertuzumab. So this was approximately four weeks ago. Um, she couldn't take the Pertuzumab, first of all, because it, it was... Um, it was there, but she couldn't afford taking it at a private institution. Or, um, so she had to take it at a tertiary institution versus a non-university uh, institution. And she couldn't possibly do that because either they would not take Wizara patients or either they would, not, um, they would not have the medication. I also had a patient that is now um, currently has prostate cancer and is on what we call as abiraterone acetate or Zytiga. And Zytiga has been out of sight for the last four weeks. It appeared almost two weeks ago in a very small sample size, and then it got cut off again. And so we have to interrupt their treatment, and he has metastatic prostate cancer. I have to interrupt his treatment every now and then or start begging people left and right to try to get some kind of uh, beg oncologists left and right if they have uh, patients that are not taking it anymore. And uh, I have to wait now two weeks uh, for Zytiga to come back um, to be readily available again in the country. I had to ask, I think you know Barbara Nassar, I had to ask them for their help because they searched uh, for patients that stopped taking this medication so that my patient can take it so that they don't pause. Yeah, so, so basically it'll be interesting, I guess, to look at cancer mortality and morbidity uh, in Lebanon down the road in the next one or two years compared to other countries in the region given what's happening right now. And I'm sure that the numbers are going to be horrible because as, as Muhammad was saying, and he had, he had an experience with a lot of those patients, I unfortunately had an experience with a few that refused to take the treatment because they know they can't afford it. The first thing that people would tell you would like, yes, but uh, the Ministry of Health covers, um, covers a lot of those. Yes, it does, but the Ministry doesn't cover all the standard medication, the universal medications, uh, you know, we have our own guidelines. 
we can't follow international guidelines always. And I kind of understand that in a way because you can't afford getting the medications. So you should use the best possible treatment that you can afford. But even that is becoming a scarcity now, which, which is um, unfortunate. And I think it's not just the mortality, Khalid, it's also the morbidity, like you were saying, like patients, especially the past six months uh, and maybe even eight months have been suffering. I know a patient with advanced prostate uh, cancer, uh, metastatic to the bladder, who was also not able to find his uh, treatment and they had to do a bilateral orchiectomy. I, I don't know if that's even like the standard of care, but that was the only thing uh, they, they could so offer him. This is what we used to do back in the day, you know, before we had these medications. I mean, <laughs> and, and now you find, and it's, it's, it's uh, ironic because, um, and sad because we used to do the bilateral orchiectomies when we didn't have anything better to do. And now we're resorting to it because we can't find the suppressants that we, the injections. And it's, it's uh, crazy. Even in blood disorders or platelet disorders, we're going back to uh, um, uh, splenectomies and procedures like that, which is also weird. Wow. Any, any success stories? Like, have you had any success? I mean, we talked about the bad things. Have, have there been any success stories? Uh... Yes. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> we do have success stories. Yes. Uh, we had a young patient that um, was, uh, was admitted for lymphoma. And fortunately for us, one of the medications we couldn't get, but then we were able to, his family was able to get it from, from abroad. And even though he had a nasty disease, he took it and he was in complete remission. So now he's doing very well. And another success story, is, well, success story was with a very young lady with a very bad lymphoma. And I just saw her today after three cycles of treatment. And I think by physical exam, everything is gone. So uh, there's always good news remaining. <laughs> it is. I almost want to end the podcast here to leave it like on a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, reality check. <laughs> You, you were talking a little bit about the different forms of uh, coverage in Lebanon. So you have patients who have private insurance and then patients who have uh, social security, Daman, uh, or one of uh, the governmental uh, coverage like Kluwa uh, Amin, like Jesh, uh, and then people who have nothing resort to Wizara. So uh, have you noticed like a difference in availability and accessibility based on the type of coverage that you have? Definitely. So you find that those that are covered by the Lebanese army, um, of course, as you know, the Lebanese army covers certain institutions or certain procedures in some places. But I believe personally, my opinion, it's still the best coverage that someone can have because they are able to uh, get the treatments that people need and uh, get the procedures even if it's in specific centers, but I believe they are still doing the best they can for their patients. One of the challenges lies with Daman or CMSS, because as you know, private institutions or labs or anything, they charge the dollar rate as per the black market or relative to the black market, not all of them, but they have a certain rate that they cover with um, private sectors 
almost 4,000 or 3,900 liras. And then the demand pays at the rate of 1,500. So you get this difference. So you get that the patient is paying a lot of money and then they get back a smaller proportion. So the difference that they pay is coming out in millions of liras. So I had a patient that was um, not my patient, a patient of a colleague of mine because they called me if I can transfer them to a hospital, to one of our hospitals because they had to pay um, 15 million liras as a difference between what the demand covers and what they have to pay. So millions of liras are coming out um, with so. When it comes to insurances, if the patient pays their insurance on the old market rate, then the insurance would cover at the old market rate. And so even patients with insurances are uh, having to pay large amounts of monies and they would come and tell you, sorry, I have insurance, but my insurance can't pay what I'm having and I can't afford all of this. So there is a gap everywhere. No matter how you try to switch it, there's a big gap that we're finding it's very hard to cover. Not to, uh, you know, be very glim or... Um, yeah, but, but, but you basically know, what, you're saying, basically, what you're saying is that people who are insured are probably as if they're uninsured at this point. I mean, you can get insurance, yes. but you have to pay more into your medical care than the cost of your insurance. Yes, I, there are. Uh, if they're insured, um, the insurance might not cover everything. And this is natural, of course, but now the gap is more prominent and we can see it more because they have to pay more than they should if they had uh, any type of second-party coverage or third-party coverage, they also have to pay a lot of money out of their pocket that they didn't use to pay before. So I think, Khalil, just to put it in perspective to the audience in the U.S., it's, it's like uh, you have your insurance and you have, to, you have a certain copay, right? So it used to be 20%. Now in Lebanon, the copay is up to 80 to 90%, regardless exactly. of your coverage, whether it's Daman or private insurance. The copay is just ridiculous. It's 80 to 90%. Um, so yeah, if, if you have the man or insurance, it really doesn't make a difference at the end of the day. Yeah, you just have to get the money to pay for your procedures in that case. So how can people, how can people help, I guess? I know there's, there's NGOs on the ground and outside that are trying to help, but do you know of any of them, Anwar or uh, Muhammad Ali? And, uh, and how can people help? Actually, I think uh, Muhammad and myself uh, are working for uh, for the same center now, and and they're they're helping um, people with as much as they can. It's just one of them. You also have with the lab tests or the procedures that they can do in the primary care setting. When it comes to oncology, it's it's more difficult because you know uh, today uh, we wanted to get an e-bus for a patient, and do you know how much it costs now. I know when, when I left, it was costing like around 20 million liras or something like that. Now, probably- yeah, today it costs 35 million liras. So, so the NGOs can, can cover up to a certain extent, but when the, when the procedures get complicated, there's not much that you can do. But yes, I believe Muhammad knows uh, more when it comes to the NGO uh, sectors and uh, how they can help people. I know there's a bunch, but is there like any specific initiative on the ground 
in terms of oncology that you want to highlight their work. I know you you do, do a lot of work with Barbara and the Side Foundation. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just because I work with them. They are a fantastic group of people. Anjad, uh, they're, they're a wonderful group of people that really, um, with, of course, the leadership of um, Mr. Hani Nassar, they really go out of their way to make sure that they can get patients their medications at least. Um, they, I have never sent them a patient that was turned away for any sort of reason unless they were really not able to get the medication. Um, last week, they helped a patient of mine get uh, medications for leukemia. This week, as I mentioned earlier, they, got, uh, they helped the patient get medications for prostate cancer. Uh, they help out a lot when it comes to procedures and patients can't pay them. They cover a certain part of that as well. And you also have um, certain oncologists, which, which I found to be extremely reassuring. They help each other out. So for any reason, let's say uh, there are certain um, oncologists that work with uh, some NGOs that are ready to get another oncologist's patient to be in that NGO so that they can do their work up. Um, when it comes to breast cancer or when it comes to other types of tumors. So, you know, there are certain NGOs for every type of tumors. You have one for the lymphoma foundation. You have one for the breast cancer foundation. Uh, pediatric oncology has a better highlight, uh, as you know, with, um, with the St. Jude or with, um, with chance association, but in adult oncology, it's much more limited, but we have a lot of people that are working very hard and a lot of cancer patients are being helped, which is a positive news that we should focus on as well. So that's always good. Great. Yeah, and uh, Chance, I, I, Chance, Dr. Rula Farah does great work, I think, in the chances. Yeah, she does. She does, of course. And she was one of your first guests on the podcast. <laughs> uh, just to bring this full circle, because I know like this is a systemic problem that requires a systemic solution. And terms of the entire public health infrastructure in Lebanon. Uh, are there any initiatives that you know of at the level of the Ministry of Public Health or at the level of the Lebanese Order of Physicians or the Lebanese Cancer Society? Uh, are doctors unionizing, organizing? Uh, how are we coming together? Besides the, the initiative you were talking about, about doctors helping NGOs, but are they doing something at the bigger level? So um, uh, I was very happy a couple of weeks ago when, um, of course, you all know Dr. Roger Khater, he's, uh, he's a leading oncologist in Lebanon, and he's also the president of the uh, Lebanese uh, Society for Cancer Physicians. Um, he approached me and he actually was, um, was uh, conducting this uh, free um, mammograms and echographies for patients from around Lebanon, um, from the Lebanese Cancer Society, and they um, provide approximately 30 to 40 free mammograms in almost each country around, um, uh, almost each, sorry, area around the country. So a, a lot of small initiatives are being um, available. Um, the Ministry of Public Health is also, um, is also doing some of those in certain months, like in the month of um, November, uh, November, sorry, uh, as we know, there were some some centers that were providing uh, 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 PSA levels 
at a lower price. Uh, but there is nothing. I don't want. I don't know how to use the term without sounding uh, <laughs> unappreciative or uh, negative. But there's nothing standard. There's nothing that people can really fall back on or go to bed thinking that I have this that I can uh, use if bad stuff happened to me. It's just like if you're lucky enough and this was going on at that period of time and you got this tumor, then you might be lucky. But else, um, other than that, um, it, it might be very challenging. Uh, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how many practicing oncologists are in Lebanon right now? Do you have a sense of how many have left and how many are still practicing? Yes. So um, oncologists in general were... were um, I mean, they're not as, as uh, many as pediatricians, naturally. Um, so, there weren't, so there wasn't that big of a number. Some of them uh, are now commuting back and forth to Lebanon. So they would um, practice a couple of weeks outside in, in mostly Arab countries and they would come back. So they're part-time here and elsewhere. Uh, but you can safely say that more than 50% uh, uh, of the oncologists have left already yeah and i know my wife my wife worked at uh, at aub uh, pediatrics department i know even at saint jude uh, a good number of the saint jude pediatric oncologists have left are on the verge of leaving uh, soon which is which is also not good yeah i mean you could see because um, the number of patients that um, that are now present um, Unfortunately, they are being distributed amongst those oncologists that remain uh, rather than those, of course, that have left. And now the ones that are here have to um, have to take shifts for both. So uh, not not um, I mean, I'm not complaining as someone that has just started their career. I'm uh, I, I'm not complaining about the workload. Of course, we would never want people to get sick. But this is the reality. Um, but for those people that are already having a hard time with their patient load, now their 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 hard time is much worse because they're they have to pick up yeah. the base. Yes. So what do you think the future looks like? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you <laughs> honestly my answer to this is I have no clue what the future looks like. Uh, I'm trying to take this day by day because the longer I think about it, the, uh, the more frustrated I get. Uh, if I want to be realistic, it doesn't look so good from the, um, from the uh, near future. Hopefully, in the, um, in the next years to come, I think we always tend to find a way to um, make the worst better and i'm not saying that in a romanticized good way because i don't like this at all <laughs> but we always manage to find solutions for such stuff which is good but it's also bad because there's never um, a clear-cut uh, route that you can follow so i i really don't think the future looks great but i'm hoping that i would be proven wrong yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Things... Sorry for being pessimistic. <laughs> no, at this at this point, I mean, you have the right to be pessimistic, but uh, hopefully, I mean, at some point, hopefully, there will be a turnaround and and things will start to get better again. I really hope so. I really hope so.
I mean, I always inshallah, think, right? Yeah, inshallah. And I always think about it like the, the country passed through like this year civil war and how many people at the time said, uh, it's done, we've given up, nothing's going to get better. And then it did, it did get better for a while, I guess, and, and got worse again. You know, you know what's scary now is that um, they all, people around here always say now that we used to, uh, it, it used to literally be uh, bombshells um, thrown on us. And we've never had a worse time because now we are starving. I heard this today in the clinic. A lady told me, I wish we had civil war, which is not justified in any way. But right. she said, at least during the civil war, I was finding food to eat. And now I'm not. Right. So but I think also people forget. Scares me a little bit. Civil war has been so long ago. People tend to forget how bad it was back then. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, you're right. I think yeah, with the civil right. war, it was there was like periods of uh, uncertainty and periods of clashes, but there was also periods of prosperity. And yeah. again, I, I've heard that a lot. Kenfi baraki, kenfi bahbuha, kenfi masari. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I heard the civil war. There was construction, but but right now it's just been like two, or, and now we're going to the third bad year. Just things are just going downhill. And uh, we're just like downsloping and free falling, and we haven't hit rock bottom yet. And I think that's like the scary part is that we right. haven't hit rock bottom yet. And things, whenever we say like, how worse can it get? And then the next day, it just surprises us. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you read that what? area, it's, I mean, since the 1800s, people have been migrating, right? Mostly, mostly outwards because there's been a lot of wars, like war, famines. I mean, the World War I famine in the 1800s, there was a big war, right? And people yeah. have migrated all over the world uh, from our countries. And it, I mean, it always gets worse, gets better afterwards. I mean, there's nothing that's going to stay the same, I think. So keep the faith, keep the faith, guys. Yes, but but uh, something just not not to be negative. But when, when was the last time that you saw um, uh, nutritional deficiency because people can't afford food. Right. So yesterday I saw a patient that had megaloblastic anemia and she's she's not able to. Uh, she for the last year she was not able to get any food and she had a vitamin B12 deficiency because she can't buy food. I mean, you read this and so now we're seeing the natural history of diseases and uh, hoping this would change. Yeah, and I think what, what pisses me off sometimes in, in Lebanon is that some people, some people at the higher end, like who are extremely rich, they, they're either like this, I mean, they don't know what's going on or they don't care. Like they just, if you talk to them, they're like, as long as we can get our generators and our clean food, our clean water, uh, our trash picked up from around where we live, we're fine. It doesn't matter to us what happens to the rest of the people. And, yeah. And, it has to be a societal thing. Like you have to make sure that we're supporting your whole society and not only yourself. Yeah, love like thy neighbor, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think on a that, yeah, I could keep going. Uh, sorry. Yeah, we can a go on for two hours. But... <laughs> a good percentage of people don't know, as you were saying. They don't know what's going on. They feel that... Um, they, when you ask them, some of them say, no, no one is poor in Lebanon. No one really needs food. Everyone has food. That's what some of them say. And I think, uh, yeah, just to justify what you're saying. Yeah, I think people live in their bubbles and don't interact with people 
outside their bubble and just they assume everyone's in the same bubble as them. Because you really, if, if you live in a bubble, you, you're shielded from the poverty and the extreme poverty uh, around you. Yeah, true. Yeah, but the bubble is getting smaller and smaller. Ah, I hope so. <laughs> you hope so? <laughs> no, uh, for I, from from the way that I understood it, that the bubble is getting smaller and smaller, so that people can we can pop it and people will get out of it. Right. Unless I completely you misunderstood you. <laughs> you correct. I think that. Unless I completely misunderstood that, and you meant it in a negative context, and I hope for that. So no, I don't mean that at all. <laughs> All right, guys, this was it was great talking to you both. And uh, we'll, we'll be following you closely on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for highlighting this, Anjad, especially in this time. What you two are doing is amazing. You don't need me to tell you this, but but truly. Thank you. Thank you. And what, what you, I mean, what's your, again, can you tell us your Twitter feed and what so people can also follow you on Twitter? I actually forgot it. <laughs> I forgot what's my username. We'll, we'll, we'll have it in the show notes. We'll have a link it in the show notes. I mean, anyone that's following, anyone that's following Muhammad would know. <laughs> we interact with each other a lot. I think you and Muhammad's tweets are, are to the point. I mean, you, you put patient stories. You uh, So it, it gives a, a very good idea of what's going on in the country. And I can, I we, we can I follow can you because be. you start getting better then your tweets will start getting better. So we'll know that. Yeah. I can never be compared to the Twitter master, Muhammad Jardali. I mean, I could, I could no. try, but I, I, I can never get there. <laughs> no, no. Anwar, when you go viral, you just go viral on a national level. I just use Twitter to vent out. <laughs> Honestly, it's therapeutic for me. Like whenever I see an inter patient in encounter, I'm just like, this isn't real. I, I need to like tell the world about it before like. Yeah, I get it. Of course. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your time. It was good seeing you again. See you too. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>